We're momming today with Olivia Bernard. Uh, she's a single mom, lives right near Austin, Texas, a realtor. She does it all. Uh, Olivia, thanks for coming on. And the reason we had you on is you just won um, the election to your to your school board of Dripping Springs. And we, we were talking about what type, you know, people think Texas, uh, you know, red state, conservative values, but that's not necessarily the case where you are right near Austin. That's right. And it's changing. It's changing so quickly. And I'm glad that you articulated it that way. I try to express that to people outside of Texas, um, that from, from district levels, things are changing. So you, did you speak at, you spoke at CPAC recently, correct? Um, I attend CPAC, but I haven't actually spoken on the stage now. So what did you bring to the table? It was a very tight race. What did you bring to the table that you think resonated with your community? You know, it's interesting. In 2020, I started attending more school board meetings and this community of like-minded folks just started growing. I was meeting people I didn't know before. We were realizing that we were having the same concerns and we were all in a position that we understood time was important. We had to act now. We had to get vocal now. And somehow I kind of just became, um, I, I don't want to say leader. That sounds so silly, but people started well, coming are. to me with their concerns. Like what? Saying we, yeah, it just, it came together and I just kind of took a role in, in that. Um, and through that is where it kind of started planting the seeds of running, but we mobilized, right? We started staying in contact together. And I think people felt less alone and less isolated because we realized we all had the same current concerns of what was happening in our community, state level, federal level, but at our front door is where it mattered. And we, we just, we got together and mobilized. What, what were the issues? What were people upset about griping about? What did they, what change did they want to see? You know, obviously I think masks was the biggest one, but the thing about the mask is that it opened up our eyes to so many other things. The masks for someone like myself were always an issue. And I want to have respect for anyone who um, was sick or anyone who lost family members. Um, But at the end of the day, as a very healthy person who who um, stays fit and eats very clean and is not a smoker and doesn't do drugs. I always looked at this and I was looking at the science. And when I was looking at the science in contrast to what our government was telling us to do, what our government was pushing down to a local level, it never resonated. It didn't make any sense. And I was not going to just sleep on that and be okay with it. My son was um, six at the time, very healthy. He thrives in um, a stable, structured environment. He's extraordinarily social. Um, And to be in a position where, I mean, I'll never forget it. It was March of 2020. We were heading, we were going to go to New York City um, for spring break. And it was the Friday before spring break. And I'm 45 and never in my life had there been a situation where they cancel school. Like the concept of it was so massive. And it just didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense because I'm not an intelligent person. It didn't make sense because I am intelligent. And um, it just, it it just woke me up for lack of a better term. And um, sitting and just accepting these things was just not an option for me. 
So how did you get people to come to your side or, or how, how did you become the voice for them? I mean, did people was, say, well, OK, you know, we're really concerned about school safety in terms of, you know, COVID spreading or like yeah. how, how did you become popular? Well, it was very organic because you start, you, you just kind of start communicating with other parents and you're realizing that other people feel the same way. And, you know, we knew we were coming up um, to a May election, which is obviously a non-general um, election. My district is about 8,000 students, about 1,200 employees, um, seven, seven board members. So we knew as a community, so first of all, everyone's getting more active, more parents are now um, communicating with the district and the board. More parents are now attending board meetings. Um, you know, so why, then we would, why, why was there a, a newfound activism among the parents? Is it because of some of the national issues about what the schools were teaching in terms of, you know, race and gender identity, or was it something else? No, it's both. It was number one. The number one topic was the mask. When that kind of blew everything open, and this is really interesting. When it comes to CRT, it is such a hot topic. I truly believe that more people would be united if we just use the actual truth as a basis in this conversation, right? I see what's happening nationally. I have seen examples of it in our very own district. It is happening, but the argument that quote CRT is not happening, actually it's it's a pretty legitimate statement. CRT for the actual defini definition is probably not happening in our elementary schools. What's happening is, ideologies, and I apologize if you're hearing my, my emails beat, but um, ideologies do get in. And I don't think, I wanna say for my district, I don't think at a district level, it's a problem. And I don't think at most district levels it is. We have really good policy and legislature in Texas um, that we have protections in that way, but it does seep in because you have one person who has political or, or social justice ideologies and they exhibit that through conversation or in the schoolroom. So as we were seeing examples of this, primarily on national news, but that's the thing, they're really happening, right? You see it, you see the parents fighting it. That became a huge issue because we were shut down for so long. And prior to 2020, parents were not as engaged. I was one of those. Um, I, I've said this before. I thought the school board was like glorified hall monitors. I really did. And I it's, it's so embarrassing to admit, but... I moved here for my school district. I love this district. I'm a single mom with a small business. I was very happy to get my son on the bus every day and just trust my education, trust his education to, to the district. And because these conversations were happening nationally with CRT, the absolute destruction of communities in the summer of love I think that we started um, paying attention and as, you know, looking into our, our classrooms and our hallways to see if those things were happening. What's the summer of love? Are you referring to the uh, George Floyd protests? Yeah. 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 I was reading, Some, you know, um, it was actually a New York Times uh, opinion piece uh, by a, um, a Columbia University professor used to write for the Washington Post. So this was by no means um, a conservative. And he had said, and he referenced some um, of his friends at, you know, the Brookings Institution forever, for example, who had been saying all of a sudden, and they, and they went back to 2015, younger people started to get extremely sensitive about anything related to, to sex, race, uh, you name it, um, that 
anything that was done at the corporate level, they took personally, they were offended and it warped into like something minor. Someone might not have even realized that they that they did something offensive became a civil rights lesson, became um, they, 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 they became racism. Um, and now companies, school boards don't know what to do with this this sensitive um, younger type person. And it's going up all the levels right now of the ranks. And now because of what's happened in recent years, leadership is for the first time in some cases you have younger or um, more minorities that are in leadership positions and it's all fresh and new and nobody knows how to deal with all of this. But the point of this article, um, the, the author was saying, Thomas Edsel was saying, <laughs> when you look at some charities or some groups that have just, you know, real positive uh, goals, they're getting distracted because they're worried about mm-hmm. everything else, about gender pronouns, and they're getting distracted from their mission, which is social good. It's so sad. It's so sad. But I think that what he is speaking to is happening at every level of um, every level of our society. It's happening locally. It's it's happening everywhere. And it's sad. And what's so difficult to understand is I don't think that that's the direction that the masses of this country want us to go. I think the majority of us are really, really frustrated by it. Right. Um, we saw that in the summer of 2020, we saw these emotional reactions and responses and where people will go out and, um, without all of the information and without having healthy dialogue and conversation, that's how change happens. When you get people at the table at a community level and you have conversations and you identify where there's challenges and you you collaborate and you come up with solutions, good things happen. But that there is this movement right now that seems hell-bent just on making people have an emotional reaction, scream louder. We see it right now with, with the reversal of, of, of RV Wade. You know, media is not talking about what this actually is, the constitutional statute for why this happened and what it means for states. What's happening is through media, through corporations getting on this, um, we're seeing the messaging push young people to get mad and hate your country and hate the system. And the message isn't, I doubt you meant to go on RV Wade, you know, but I'm just using this as an example. The message is this is taking rights away from women rather than the message being for the states that are choosing to change laws to say this is to give rights to a human being that isn't being represented. So <laughs> at the end of the day, whatever the hot topic is, rather it's CRT, um, rather it is police brutality, rather it is um, the defederalization of RV Wade, we are pushing a society through media to stop having good conversation and just react emotionally and have no concern for the truth. And it's bad. It's really, it's affecting, uh, makes me so sad what it's doing to the younger generations. It's really sad because they don't want to have logical conversations. They want to be mad and kick and scream. And if they don't get their way, then the offense is that someone else is doing something horrible or someone else is taking away something from them. And that's just flat out not not the case. More with Olivia Bernard right after this. 
Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. We're back on We're Momming today with Olivia Bernard and you just opened Pandora's box. Roe v. Wade, um, you're in Texas and Texas has bef- some of the strictest anti-abortion measures in the country. What, what's it like since that big ruling where you are? You know, um, because I'm on the outskirts of Austin, I, I think that I see one perception um, from the general public, but I don't think that's generally Texas as a whole, as you said earlier, I mean, Texas is a pretty conservative state um, in general, especially historically. But in Austin, uh, where I am, the response has been very, very heated. Obviously, people are taking taking to the streets and the perception is um, it's kind of funny because the perception is the, the biggest messaging is why are men making decisions about what women can do with their bodies? And what's so interesting is when RV Wade was enacted, you had literally a Supreme Court that was all old white men. And now we have a Supreme Court with a black man and with a woman. And they, you know, they did the right thing according to the Constitution, but this is not a constitutional issue in public eye. Uh, in the public eye, this is a social justice movement. And this is, you know, a move, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but it's what I see online. Like it's a move toward authoritarianism, I can't even speak, um, an authoritative movement where we, you know, we want to control what's happening to women's bodies. I kind of come from the perspective of, I am so grateful to have born, to have been born on the soil of the United States of America, where I choose who to have sex with, who to procreate with, when to get married, if I went to get married, I'm a divorced single mom. I'm grateful that that was a right given to me, you know, having been born in the United States. Um, but it's, you know, that's not the perception because we're teaching young adults today that the United States is, you know, taking the way rights um, from people. But I'm sorry, I digress. The well, response here is very negative. The response here is that, um, we're taking away women's rights and this is just the beginning of an avalanche that it's going to lead into other decisions that further um, disintegrate human rights. Right. And you have some of the scare tactics being um, added to that in terms of, you know, the, the government's going to the Supreme Court is going to take away your right to uh, contraception, same sex marriage. They go down the line. But you're also in Texas where there was a recent school shooting, the Uvalde school shooting. Um, how, and I just, I'm thinking of the abortion issue. I'm thinking of the gun issue and I'm thinking of the midterm elections where, you know, with inflation being front and center for so many people are suburban women in particular, maybe the women that you're surrounded by, are they saying, well, you know what, we're having trouble making ends meet because a gallon of milk is $6 now, but I'm more concerned about abortion and gun control over the price of life. The quality of life, you know, that's been um, just decimated under this administration. Mm-hmm. It has. And I, I do not see how people don't get it. But what you just described is exactly what what I see. I see people who are ignoring inflation, ignoring the pain at the pain at the pump, ignoring our open southern border 
the drug trafficking, the sex trafficking, um, they are literally oblivious or using selective um, uh, selective observation to ignore those things, and they will be voting simply on the basis of gun control and um, what they call so, reproductive rights. So you think that's true? So because you know everyone's trying to figure out what all this means for November. Um, yeah, you think this is a setback for the GOP then? These two cultural issues. So, I've got it. I really have to narrow this down to where I live. So okay. I have, we just redrew our state districting lines. So we have a second term, very progressive Democrat in Texas 73. And her messaging, her name's Aaron Zweener, by the way, she is out there. She is not talking about the pain that our constituents are feeling because of this inflation and because of our property taxes going up exponentially. She's not talking to the community about those things. Her complete focus is on those items, gun control and abortion rights. Now to the flip side of that, we have um, a recently, uh, Carrie Isaac is the Republican who just, uh, it was her second time to run. She did not, she did not win last time she's running again. Um, she'll be running for House District 73. And then we have Michelle Lopez in my district, 45. And they are running on gun control on gun rights. They're pro 2A because anyone that looks at it logically understands when you start talking about gun control or gun buybacks, the only people that you're legitimately hurting are legal gun owners and legal gun owners by and far are not the ones committing crimes. But if you if you win in that regard, you leave criminals and the government with guns and look at any society in history and look at what happens. You have a you you have a nation that can't fight back against a corrupt corrupt government and you end up like Venezuela, like Cuba, and you end up like Nazi Germany. On a much different note, Olivia, um, <laughs> you were raised by a single dad. Yes. Um, what was that like? Oh my gosh. Well, uh, so I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went to a uh, high school there. We were six time state football champs. It was your Friday night lights. Oh, I'm up. getting the chills. Um, I always wish I oh, went to a school was, like that. I had an idyllic um, childhood. It certainly didn't start great. I think my mom left us when we were about eight. Um, that was, was always a traumatic relationship in my life, but it's funny because my childhood memories are so happy and I had nothing. I mean, literally like I knew if we had money based on rather or not the cable was turned off that month. <laughs> oh wow! But I, I had the most amazing life and my dad didn't know what he was doing. This man had no clue what he was doing, raising a teenage girl by himself, but he loved me so much. And the lessons that he taught me, he never articulated very well. Right. But looking back now that I have, have, where I, the privilege of looking back at my life, um, unconditional love, um, a parent who was always there, no matter what I started working really young. I started working full-time at 16, um, uh, bought my first house at 23, like Seriously? He instilled, yeah, he instilled a lot of really valuable lessons and he died. Actually, he passed away when I was 23. So to answer your question, to, to grow up with a single dad, it was really 
it was interesting, right? Because you're not always the favorite person to have like the sleepovers and the slumber parties. Like there was, there was some, there was some awkward things, but I had, um, I was very blessed, had an amazing, amazing childhood. And I think that my relationship with my dad and the example that he set for me has really set the bar, um, for the man that I hope to have in my son's life one day and, and for myself. So it was awesome. I wouldn't change a thing. Can you share a story about like just how your dad really goofed on a girl moment? <laughs> It's so crazy to me that you say that because he was the biggest goof and you and I have obviously not had this conversation. You would never know that. Um, So I'll tell you something that he did that was always really funny. He thought it was just really hilarious to embarrass me. And you can imagine, like, I was... I was pretty popular. I had the boyfriends. I had all the friends. I, you know, your dad doing goofy things was not what I thought was cool. But to this day, to this day, everyone that I stay connected with from high school, they constantly reach out to me and just tell me how important my dad was to them because he just, he loved on and hugged on everybody. But he thought it was really funny to show up at my high school. So you have to picture my high school during lunch hour, right? It's like all the cool kids were hanging out. My dad would walk into my flipping high school cafeteria with bags full of like Taco Bell. (laughs) For your friends? For my friends, for everybody. Oh, he's cool. He would just bring it in. And I would be so embarrassed. I literally wouldn't even acknowledge him, but they would be like cheering him on. That man would not even make eye contact with me. He thought it was so funny. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't say a word to me. He would just drop the food and literally walk and turn away. It was, (laughs) but like to this day, that's one of my best memories. And I hated it when he was doing it. But I have to tell you something else for every single parent out there the memories that we make for our kids. So my dad, from the time I was in junior high, no matter who I would spend the night with on a weekend, right? No matter how, you have to understand, I grew up in a rural area, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So a friend's house might be 13, 14 miles away. Wherever, whatever girlfriend I would stay the night with on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Can I tell you what he would do every single time the next morning? 6 a.m. hot fresh donuts on the front front porch (laughs) oh wow he would literally go to the donut shop get like hot off the press dripping glazed donuts drive them leave them on the porch and then just leave and my friends always knew this everyone would get really excited because they knew if I was spending the night they knew that my dad would have donuts on the porch the next morning he liked food it seems if I'm if I'm finding a common thread Olivia I, I don't know if you if you mind me asking, no. what is it? I mean, your mom left you when you were eight. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that something that you've struggled with? Have you been in touch with her? You are so good, girl. <laughs> um, so interestingly, because you're though, a mom now, and I mean, I, it, yeah. it must it must be more painful now because you would never do that to your child. I I wouldn't, and it makes it that's something that I do think about a lot because it's impossible to understand. My mom, um, let me start start with some good things. I have childhood memories of, of her hugging me. And it was like this, this really, really good hugs where I kind of felt safe for a moment. Um, my mom was strikingly, stunningly beautiful. Um, she literally looks like Elizabeth Taylor. Um, she is incredibly talented with art and in music. She can hear anything like Beethoven and Mozart and literally sit down at the piano and play it. So she has these 
wicked, crazy, amazing skills and she's beautiful. Um, I don't know what made her the way she was. I can, you know, I can look at it and say, okay, you know, my sister and I were born in the mid seventies. My mom, my, my, there was a 14 year age difference between my mom and my dad, maybe part of that. She got married very young. Maybe it was that she kind of didn't get to experience life. So there was a lot of reasons that maybe she wasn't happy where she was in life, but the painful thing was, um, she was very, very emotionally abusive and she just didn't want to be a mom. Now I will tell you, she would deny that her story on this would be, would be very, very different. Um, but the reality is what it is. She left. My dad raised me on his own. Um, I had intermittent, you know, intermittent time spent with my mom over the number of years and things really changed when I was 29 um, I realized this cycle of every time I wanted her back in my life, I would reach back out. We would have a few days of really great conversations and she's also a great cook. So we would enjoy a couple of great meals. And then the toxicity, the, the, the really negative stuff would come back in. And at 29, I made the decision. I can maintain this relationship in my life, or I have to go my separate, my separate way because it's not healthy. It's toxic. It's abusive. Um, so I decided to, to separate. Um, I had my son at 36. My son is now eight. I'm now 45. And I'm looking at life a little bit differently. My, my son does not have, you know, grandparents in his life regularly. And that makes me sad. I, I would really hate for my mom to pass and my son to have never known her, the good or the bad. So um, I'm currently considering um, exploring that relationship again. She lives in Texas, by the way, but just about four hours from us. I have friends with similar stories. Um, mm -hmm. I think you are strong. And um, I think she might have taught you the best lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very In terms much. of the type of mom that you want to be. Olivia Bernard, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.